This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday the 25th of October 2021 and it's two months to Christmas. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. And we should talk about Christmas, Norman, but not today because today I want to talk about something, well, it's not coronavirus related, but it sort of is. Two weeks ago on The Health Report, that other program that you and me make together, which you can get on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts, we had a snake bite expert on, Christina Zdenek, talking about what to do if you get bitten by a, a snake, a very Australian concern. And one of the things that stuck out to me was this this piece of advice that she gave, which was when you've been get bitten by a snake, you put a compression bandage on. And then when you get to the hospital, it's really important that you take that compression bandage off really, really slowly so that you don't flood your system with venom and get envenomation even though you're in the hospital. And it got me thinking about coronavirus restrictions and how we can't rush to reopening, but also how do we know whether we're rushing or not? Yes, it's something that everybody's um, obsessing on and worried about as we open up. In New South Wales, some analysts are saying that the effective reproduction number is above one, which means that you could risk exponential growth. Victoria, the numbers are really stubborn at the moment. ACT is turning around, which is great news. But as we open up, numbers will go up. So let's just go overseas and have a look. And let's forget about the modelling for the moment and just look at what's happening overseas. So Denmark was the country that we said on Coronacast we should be watching. Country of five or six million people, not too different in population from Greater Sydney or Greater Melbourne. They opened up at three, four hundred cases a day. They had a rough time earlier in the in the northern summer, and they opened up pretty much completely, having done a staged opening. Well, their numbers are going up. So from three or four hundred for um, a week or two, they're now. You know, remember, it's the tenth of September, and it's now the end of October. They're now at over twelve hundred cases a day. Their hospitalizations are going up slowly, but they're still very low. The UK is uh, is really not good at all between 45 and 50,000 cases a day and really stressing the hospital system. But the UK is hard one to compare ourselves to. They've messed up just about everything. They've had a testing system which has gone wrong in part of England and their 12 to 15-year-old campaign have been faltering or really not terribly well organised to start with. So it's hard to compare ourselves, but you can see what can happen if you go to a Freedom Day without everything else being in place. But no one's actually suggesting that in Australia, that we do just bounce the doors straight open into a Freedom Day. It's like, but what level of gradual reopening is the right speed? It won't just be numbers of cases growing each day. What will be the concern will be the numbers of hospitalizations, the number of people in ICU, and the numbers of people dying. And that's really the concern. And that will track up along with the numbers, but at a very low level because we've got such great levels of vaccination. So the question is, do we, at one point, do what Denmark's done and lift all restrictions and then just see what happens. So Denmark's seen a rise in cases and they're seeing a slow rise in hospitalizations and presumably that will continue to get worse. It's still at a very low level. And I think that really what we're doing, what you're looking at here in Australia, according to the experts, is a multifaceted approach that doesn't rely just on vaccination. Uh, to slightly contradict that, in one aspect in terms of vaccination, we should be giving booster shots or the third doses. And that campaign needs to start very soon for the elderly, for healthcare workers who got immunised March, April, and then progressively other people as they get to the six-month six mark. 
mask wearing indoors in public settings, that's probably something we shouldn't lose just yet until we see what's happening. Just like your snake bite analogy, we just need to be very careful about lifting too much too fast, although mask wearing is something you can put back. But you, once you once you've got a problem on your hands, it's very hard to put it back in the in the bottle. The UK is talking yet again about a lockdown and ca- calling for lockdowns. It's got so bad in the UK, but you really can't compare ourselves to the UK. So we're trying to come out from a lockdown situation where we're just controlling it with these big blunt instruments of a city or statewide lockdown. That's really exciting that we're sort of coming away from that. But what you're saying is there's still a lot of the hallmarks of the pandemic that are going to be remaining, including masks and, and that sort of thing. That, that some people are arguing should remain. Um, rather than just getting rid of them altogether, recognising that the virus will be circulating. There'll be a lot of virus around, even at 90% immunisation, because, you know, and part of the reason for that is waning immunity of the original cohort of people who were immunised. And as each month goes by, more and more people enter that group and then become vulnerable, particularly people aged over 65. So booster shots, third doses, are a very important part of this programme. But non what they call NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is about ventilation, which is about carbon dioxide monitoring, which is about mask wearing and public transport. Those sorts of things could stay in place until we're sure we've got some kind of control on it. It's an exhausting level of constant vigilance. That's a really good point. And the other thing that's got to continue is testing. And what I suspect might happen is that testing really falls off. So we actually don't know how much virus is out there in the community. Uh, Professor Catherine Bennett at Deakin University suggested we move to something called sentinel surveillance, which is a bit more like how we monitor for the flu. So it's not comprehensive, but it does pick up uh, whether or not you've got a flu problem out there. But we really do need to continue to report hospitalizations, ICU admissions, deaths, because that's the mo- that's the mo- that, that is the measure. But part of the intervention still is vaccination and places are increasing their targets. We were talking about 70%, 80%. We've talked about this a bit on Friday and Victoria has locked in that it's looking to get to 90% of 12 plus, which is sort of a, a newly ambitious milestone, but they expect to get there about in about one month from now. The 24th of November is when that's projected to, to be. Do you see the other uh, jurisdictions following suit? If they've got half a brain, they will, because (laughs) you want as many people in your community uh, immunised as possible. So I can't imagine that the chief health officers of Western Australia or Queensland or South Australia or Tasmania want anything less for their population. Their problem is motivating the population to get it done. So what they've done in uh, Western Australia is a large mandate. So a huge proportion of the working population in Western Australia will be immunised, uh, mandated so. In Queensland, they've taken the strategy of saying 17th of December, we're opening up, so get ready. That, that's their problem. They would love to see 12 plus 90%, um, but they'd love to see it without having COVID hanging over their heads in terms of a growing pandemic. Yeah, and it really feels like this idea of the vaccinated economy, that if you're unvaccinated, you're just going to be left behind. You know, then There's two ways to look at the unvaccinated. One is on your own head, be it, if you make that choice. But the reality is, if you're unvaccinated, you end up in hospital in ICU, you're taking up a bed of somebody who could be treated for heart disease, cancer or or something, something else. Major surgery these days requires a day or two in ICU. And if your ICU beds are blocked, your ability to do those surgeries is blocked. It has a societal implication and it threatens the doctors and nurses looking after them. It does take us right back to the beginning of this pandemic, where if you remember rightly, we went to lockdown to protect our hospital system. 
Yeah, I wonder sometimes if we have done enough yet to help the remaining people who haven't been vaccinated to access vaccines. Like there are a lot of people who've gone out and gotten it. There's a lot of people who were hesitant and have changed their mind, gone and gotten it. That's fantastic to see. But I suspect there's also a decent chunk of people who haven't gotten it because it is tricky. Well, I'll just give you an example of South East Queensland and the Aboriginal population in South East Queensland. So a fair degree of frustration amongst Aboriginal elders and leaders in South East Queensland that young Aboriginal people in particular are not getting their vaccine influenced by social media and so on. They got, they got modelling done by uh, Emma McBride at James Cook University, which shows the number of deaths that you could expect in Aboriginal communities if they don't get vaccinated. So, so And there are vaccines available through community-controlled health organisations uh, throughout Greater Brisbane and South East Queensland. So it's not an access to the, that, it's about attitude and, and, other problem, and other issues as well. And the judgement of Aboriginal leaders in South East Queensland is now it's time to scare uh, young Aboriginal people into getting the vaccine with the reality of what it will look like when COVID does start back in Queensland as it will when borders open. Mm. And on borders and opening and vaccination and immunity, Joe is asking, well, Joe says, I know WA is on Norman's naughty list at the moment, but I'll be brave and ask a question anyway. When a COVID zero state like WA opens up with hopefully high vaccination rates and hopefully before 2030, will it be more vulnerable because there is no natural immunity because um, it won't have had any infections? So what I take from this question is, is really what protection or vulnerability do you get in a highly immunised population from having had, underneath all that, um, some natural infection? And it's really controversial uh, and people have different views on it. So Singapore, like us, doesn't have much natural immunity because very few people have been infected. And there's not much difference between our states in terms of really the proportion of the population who've been infected. There's a little bit of evidence that maybe you get an extra kick out of your vaccine if you've had uh, an infection in the past and you've probably got a little bit of background immunity to help you along a bit which may be what is a reason why Denmark is increasing a bit more slowly than other places that have opened up. But you know there's, there's plenty of people who've been infected in Britain and they're seeing a huge boom in cases and the hospital system stretched. So you cannot rely on natural immunity to get you out of this is the message. You've got to rely on vaccination plus other measures like we talked about at the beginning of the show. And a question from Sally who says, surgical masks give me maskne, so acne caused by mask. I was going to invest in some 100% silk reusable masks that are less likely to cause breakouts. They have a cotton interior, but she's asking whether you think they'd be effective enough against Delta. There is a move away from the these cotton masks back towards uh, surgical masks. And if you're going to move to a cotton mask, it's really got to be multi-layer. So I can't comment on whether a silk mask with cotton is going to be particularly reliable. Um, I understand the problem. It, if you can't wear another kind of mask because of, the, of a skin problem, then a double-layer mask is better than nothing. But whether it's as good as a surgical mask is another, is another issue altogether. I feel like masks are a bit like uh, diet and exercise. The best one is the one that you're actually going to be able to do. Yep. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast. If you've got a question or a comment, as always, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast and leave it there. And we'll see you next time. See you then. Okay.